Welcome back to Known Unknowns, Watergate, part seven. I'm Hugh Hewitt, the president of the Richard Nixon Foundation. We come to you from the basement of the Richard Nixon Library in Yorba Linda, California. Behind me is a picture of the birthplace, also on the side of the Presidential Library. To my right is Jeff Shepard, longtime member of the Nixon White House staff, part of the Nixon defense team, author of two books on Watergate. And as I've said in every one of these episodes, I think the walking, talking encyclopedia on Watergate and the person who knows more about Watergate than anybody else in the United States. Jeff, when we broke off at the end of segment six, there was a special counsel appointed uh, be because Ehrlichman and Haldeman had resigned, John Dean had been fired. What led to the appointment of that special counsel specifically and why was Archibald Cox picked? Well, the month of April 1973 is really key because it, it goes from uh, uh, John Dean retaining criminal defense counsel to disclosing all kinds of stuff to the career prosecutors, culminating in the Department of Justice coming to the White House and saying to Nixon, you must, you must uh, uh, remove Ehrlichman and Haldeman from your staff because John Dean has accused them of being involved in a conspiracy. Who came from the justice to deliver that message to the uh, president? Uh, the Attorney General Dick Kleindienst and the head of the criminal division, the longtime career prosecutor, Henry Peterson. With the tape system still working? Yes. So this Absolutely. is on tape? It's on tape. All right. It's on tape. So they come and they Sunday. tell him, you've got it's to fire Sunday. these guys. <clears throat> yeah, let me, let me drop back just a little bit and, and, and run you through. Uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just working on, on uh, domestic affairs, law and order. And uh, out of nowhere, uh, Henry Peterson, the career head of the uh, criminal division, uh, uh, says he wants to take me to lunch. And I, I'm not important. Nobody takes me to lunch. My entire five years, nobody took me to lunch. I had staff mess. Did you have mess privileges? You bet I did. Right, good. So I just went to work, went to eat, got back. If I wanted to show off, I could take people to lunch. That's what I did, too. Never. Boy, you better believe it. It's the very one perk that a low-level lawyer has you got to take someone very to lunch. Very impressive. Yes. Uh, uh, so I go to lunch with Henry. Henry says, you know, what's going on? You know, how, what are you working on all this? And at the end of lunch, he says, uh, Jeff, I'm going to tell you something. And, and, and I don't want you to tell anybody else, but Holdeman and Ehrlichman are going down. I said, you got to be kidding. I work with them. I know them. They're super stand-up people. He said, listen very carefully. Haldeman and Ehrlichman are going down. I'd, I realize you're not involved. I don't want you to do anything stupid because we need you at the White House. We have to have someone there that we can trust. And then he goes back, and I didn't believe him, goes back to the Department of Justice, and he tells everybody at the Department of Justice, the only person they can talk to is Jeff Shepard. Now, it's because I worked on policy stuff. See, I had no connection with John Dean or, or what had been going on. But John had said, when he first went to the prosecutors and his lawyer, I can give you Mitchell, I can give you Magruder, because they knew about the break-in. And the prosecutors say, you know, we don't really need you. We've got Magruder, he's here too, and, and, and we, we, that testimony doesn't do any good. So in his book, he says, he's talking to his lawyer. John Dean says John in his Dean, book. In his book, Blind Ambition, he says he's talking to his lawyer, Charlie Schaffer, and he says, I don't want to meet with those career prosecutors anymore. And Schaffer said, you have to because they are going to accuse you criminally. You'd better start talking conspiracy 
or you're going to be left out there all by yourself. And then a, two paragraphs later, he says, that conspiracy idea is not bad. And you can see it in the notes. You go to the National Archives and you can hold in your hand the notes taken by the career prosecutors at every meeting they had with John Dean. And the notes change and he starts saying, those guys knew what I was doing. Those Be, guys- But what I was doing after the original break-in through the March meeting. Absolutely, even, even John Dean, who's not my favorite guy, has never said anybody in the White House staff knew about the break-in. But what happened was the idea of, of exposing people who knew about the break-in, changing that to, well, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up, and all of you guys, you important guys, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and maybe Nixon, you were in on the cover-up. And it changes everything. Sure and does. then he takes files from his office that have nothing to do with Watergate, and he gives them to the prosecutors, and he says, here, these guys are evil. These guys were doing things that you should be worried about. And they say, we don't want this stuff. It's got nothing to do with Watergate. It's called the White House Horrors. And there's a list of it. And it's the 17 National Security Council wiretaps done without court order. The plumbers break in. They were so worried Hunt was going to spill the beans. John Dean spilled the beans in negotiating for personal immunity. There's stuff called the uh, milk producers price supports. Uh, uh, there's. There's some other things. The ITT scandal? The IT, well, no, the ITT scandal wasn't in the White House counsel's records. Is the enemies list a part of this? Well, John Dean uh, uh, talked about the enemies list. John Dean said he was going to get, it's on the tape, get the uh, IRS to, to uh, do tax reviews of people we didn't like. Which tape is that on? I can't tell you. Okay, uh, so John Dean. It's an April event. tape. It's, a, it's uh, an April 1973 and, and just, tape. And just to finish that up, he tries to do that, and our appointees, uh, uh, Johnny Walker at uh, Walters at the uh, IRS and George Schultz, uh, the Secretary of the Treasury, said, the hell we will. We don't do tax audits for but, political But this persons. dump of bad things yeah. that have happened at the yeah. White House that we've yes. covered in previous tapes and we're not, I'm just trying to stay on what happened with Watergate. Dean does this in what? In order to entice a, a, a better plea bargain? Yes, absolutely. Because absolutely. He, he'd had a plea bargain already, but now he's facing something more. No, he doesn't have a plea bargain. Ah. He's working it out and the career guys will not give him immunity. They say, no, 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 after, they, and their notes say, Dean's not telling us what he was doing. Dean's holding back. He's only telling us what he thinks other people were doing. So in the end, Dean is out in the public saying, I was just looking for the truth. I'm not going to be the scapegoat. I just want the truth. But his lawyer is in there saying immunity or nothing. Either we get immunity or you're not going to get it. And when does he offer the White House horrors? Uh, I think it's around April 22nd. As part of the but plea negotiation. It, uh, yeah, it, it, he leaves the White House over the weekend and doesn't come back. And that's when I get that call saying, do you know where John Dean is? Uh, because they're looking for him. Uh, and then it's slowly dawning on them, particularly when Kleindienst and Peterson come over and say, he's accusing these guys of being in on the cover-up. And when that becomes public, you don't want them on your staff. 
it takes Henry Peterson 19 meetings or phone calls with Nixon over the course of the second half of April 1973 to convince him he has to fire his two closest colleagues. So then out of nowhere on April 30th, news to all of us, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Kleindienst, and Dean are gone. Why is Kleindienst included in the firing well, or uh, resignation? Well, it, it's uh, it, 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 funny you should ask. Uh, perhaps because Nixon uh, felt Kleindienst should have done a better job on the investigation. He wouldn't be in this problem if he had. Perhaps because Kleindienst said, I'm too close to John Mitchell and I, I really shouldn't be here. Uh, perhaps because Haldeman and Ehrlichman said, you know, we wouldn't have to go if he had done his job. Uh, it could be Nixon wanted to dilute the impact of firing his two top people, but it was a key to Nixon's demise. And, and that's because a new attorney general arrived. Well, he had to name a new attorney general who had to be confirmed by the Senate, which wasn't in his hands at a time when the Senate Judiciary Committee was controlled by Ted Kennedy, his mortal enemy. So in that speech on April 30th, Nixon says, and for our new attorney general, I'm naming Elliot Richardson. Elliot Richardson is Mr. Clean. He's been confirmed four separate times as Under Secretary of State, as Secretary of HEW, as Secretary of Defense, and then the fourth time as Attorney General. Uh, and I've given him permission to appoint a special supervising prosecutor, that's the term of art, uh, to help him with Watergate. And Nixon knew that, that Richardson had aspirations within the party and that it would be tough to make the decision on which Republicans got indicted and which Republicans didn't get indicted. So he thought he would put somebody between Henry Peterson, in whom he had great respect and, and uh, confidence, the head of the criminal division, and Elliot Richardson, put someone in between, a maybe a politically connected lawyer who could help Richardson make those final calls. So he announced that. And he was thinking of Teapot Dome when they were investigating. They appointed one Republican and one Democrat to go through and find out what was going on. But he got mousetrapped because in the course of the Senate confirmation hearings on Elliot Richardson, who didn't want to be Attorney General, he was out clear. He was Secretary of Defense, had nothing to do with Watergate and didn't want anything to do with Watergate. But Nixon said, I need you. You've got to come over as Mr. Clean and help me clean this thing up. They told Richardson that, yes, we want a special prosecutor, but we want one who has total and unreviewed independence from the Department of Justice. And Richardson ultimately agrees to a set of guidelines that, that the department will have nothing. This is totally separate. Who wrote the guidelines, Senator Kennedy? Senator Kennedy's people wrote the guidelines. There's Did they man. stipulate Archibald Cox? No, but uh, Archibald Cox, uh, Richardson said, I will tell you my choice before you confirm me. And ultimately, he picked Archibald Cox. And, and there's a, uh, an article in the uh, Boston papers saying Cox was Kennedy's choice all along. He'd been Elliot Richardson professor when he was at Harvard Law School, but he was part and parcel of the Kennedy political machine. May I inject at this point? He was also my professor. 
because as an undergraduate at Harvard, he deigned to teach undergraduates constitutional law in the, uh, in the spring of 1978, but he actually only taught the Bakke case. He never talked about Watergate. He talked, he was litigating the Bakke he, case at that point. So I also had Archibald Cox. He, he did this a thousand lot. times yeah. a lecture. Now It is a he, very annoying thing. He, he, he was going deaf. He'd lost hearing in one ear before he became special prosecutor and he aged ungracefully. Was he, was he uh, coaching? He was a fine professor, okay. except that all we heard about was What's the Bakke case? case. What's the Bakke case? The affirmative action case at the University of California, Davis oh, Medical okay. School, okay. which he lost. <laughs> it's a classic, you know, never well, hire a law professor to he, teach an undergrad. He, Archibald Cox was uh, uh, Jack Kennedy's top speechwriter. He traveled on the campaign plane with him. He assembled Kennedy's famous uh, Harvard Brain Trust, and he was rewarded for that intimate relationship with Jack Kennedy by being named Solicitor General in Robert Kennedy's Department of Justice. Robert Kennedy was the youngest Attorney General of the nation's history, and Cox was supposed to be the old man in the room to keep things He was straight. an extraordinary professor and a giant of constitutional law. How did he assemble his special prosecutor team after Elliot Richardson agreed to appoint him, and he had in effect, de facto independence from the Attorney General. Well, not de facto. He had actual uh, independence from the Attorney General. Well, he could have been fired because he was fired. He was fired on the order of the President of the United right. States. Uh, Elliot had entered into an agreement that he wouldn't fire him. It's all in these guidelines that Senator Kennedy's staff negotiated with Richardson, and they said at the time to people whom I knew that they discovered that Elliot, Elliot would accept any push, that he'd never push back. So they kept asking for more and more and more. And Elliot was perfectly happy to wash his hands of the Watergate scandal. So he entered into a set of guidelines that turned everything over to the special prosecutor. Cox's first two hires, he's named on May 25th. Elliot sworn in at the White House. Cox is sworn in that afternoon. Ethel Kennedy comes, Senator uh, Kennedy's staff comes. It's a hallelujah chorus for Democrats because now they have gotten control of the investigatory and prosecutorial powers of the Department of Justice. This is an inversion of our Constitution. The top 17 people came from the Kennedy Department of Justice. These are the people removed from power by Nixon's 1968 election, who now are back into power without a vote of the people, and they announce at their first press conference they're going to investigate every allegation made against the Nixon administration in the six years that it's been in office. Can you very quickly summarize for our audience the names and natures of the key players on the Cox team? Yes. Archibald Cox's first two hires are two fellow professors from Harvard Law School, James Vorenberg, Cox taught labor law, James Vorenberg, who teaches criminal law, and Phil Heyman, who had been with Cox in the Solicitor's General Office under uh, Robert Kennedy. Uh, and they meet uh, on that weekend following um, the May 25th naming with uh, Ted Kennedy's top staff member, James Flug, and they spend all of Sunday afternoon talking about what they should do with this investigation. I have 
James Vornberg's seven pages of handwritten notes about those discussions. And who did they hire beneath them? Because as we all know, from the very recently concluded Mueller investigation, it's not the top person who matters so much. Right. It's number two, three, <clears throat> through 100. Well, the top 17 people all worked together in the Kennedy-Johnson Department of Justice. That's astonishing. It is. No, it's just astonishing. I have a chart that shows where everybody was. Uh, uh, the, the top guy in the Watergate task force, now there are five task forces, Watergate, the plumbers, campaign finance, dirty tricks, and the ITT scandal, which the White House wasn't involved in. Stop, Jeff Shepard, I have to ask. We'll come back to the task forces. Richard Nixon is one of the great political minds of American political history. He has been on five national tickets. The only other person who has done that is FDR. I knew him personally. You knew him personally. I never discussed Watergate with him. How in the world did he not foresee this most obvious of unfolding series of events that when he removed Kleindietz and put in Elliot Richardson and Richardson agreed to this set of guidelines drafted by Ted Kennedy, that there would be a D-Day style Normandy landing of the political enemies whom he had accumulated over his long and storied career. He lost control. Nixon did not believe he had done anything wrong. He didn't happen to believe Holdeman Ehrlichman done anything wrong, but he didn't believe he'd done anything wrong. Uh, uh, and, and so, Bringing in Mr. Clean, Elliot Richardson, uh, uh, w seemed like a good idea at the time. Elliot wanted someday to run for president. That's why he didn't want to become attorney general. And so he was happy to wash his hands, turn all this over. He bragged to the Senate Judiciary Committee during his confirmation hearings that he did not tell the White House about those guidelines. But Jeff, I want, to, I want to pause on this for the benefit of the audience. In 1980, after I'd gone off to law school, the president kindly recalled me to New York for a dinner in which he anticipated correctly the vote of every state in the 1980 election against Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter. He is known far and wide for the ability to anticipate political events. How could he not anticipate that Elliot Richardson would appoint, if not Archibald Cox, someone like him, and that everyone on Cox's staff would be out to get him? How could he not have known that? He pictured a, uh, a teapot dome type of investigation, which was done in a straight manner. He had lost his right and left arm, Haldeman and Ehrlichman. <clears throat> he had chosen Al Haig to come back and be his chief of staff. While Al Haig was a political general uh, and thought he knew the ways of Washington, he was no match for Senator Kennedy's group uh, or the special prosecutor's group, uh, they ceased to clear under Elliot Richardson anything with the White House. And having lost total control, uh, Nixon had no place to hide. All right, so we're back to the five task, task forces. forces. To what extent do they cooperate with the Senate Oversight Committee, which is drama and the reveal of the tapes, but are they working hand in glove? Well, we can't know for sure because the Senate Urban Committee sealed its records for 50 years. So they won't come out till 2024 and the special prosecutor, which existed for five years, cleaned their files. So you aren't sure what you find, but I have found 
a memo from Phil Heyman, who is one of the two original professors, saying we want to devote two of our staff to monitoring the Irvin Committee operations. Now, I happen to think they suggested questions that they wanted asked at the Irvin Committee so they could later compare and contrast in the grand jury and get people on perjury charges. I, I think we've already gone through what the Irvin Committee did by conducting a legislative trial where the government didn't have put on any proof. We did. In, in the normal course of proceedings, a criminal indictment would be first. And you, you, you move the criminal law forward. Once you're indicted, you aren't a witness for anybody. So when the special prosecutor was named, Samuel Dash, who we've talked about as chief counsel of the Urban Committee, his staff was very discouraged because the special prosecutor would ruin everything. And he said gleefully, well, they haven't indicted anybody yet. And you get the impression, there's not a record, that there's coordination because the career prosecutors didn't think we needed a special prosecutor. They put out a press release saying, we broke the cover-up, which they did. We expect a comprehensive cover-up indictment within the next two months. That would have ruined everything for the Irvin Committee. Special prosecutor comes in and they postponed that indictment. The case was already made, you see. The cover-up had collapsed. They postponed that indictment for 10 months while they investigated everything else in the Nixon administration. Now, just as a matter of personal curiosity, it is my vague understanding that former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton has a role somewhere in this. Absolutely. What is that role and, and for whom is she working? Uh, Hillary Rodham at the time was a recent graduate of Yale Law School and she's hired much later in the process to work for the House Judiciary Committee. Okay. And we so can she, go into that in the future. We will, but, but okay. she's not yet on the scene. Right. But let's go back to the people. The head of the Watergate Task Force, of the five, you see, the head of the Watergate Task Force uh, is James Neal. Uh, Dean has already retained Charlie Schaffer as his lawyer. Neal is his law partner from the Get Hoffa squad. I haven't found it. But I think he may have been Neil, uh, 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 Charlie Schaffer's suggestion. Go bring James Neal back. I, what I have found is Elliot Richardson's notes to Archibald Cox, where the first thing Cox asked for uh, after he'd accepted the position was the current contact information for a guy named Walter Sheridan. Doesn't really matter, except Walter Sheridan ran the Get Hoffa squad for the Kennedy Department of Justice. And just for your listeners, Robert Kennedy had a personal vendetta against Jimmy Hoffa, the president of the Teamsters. Deeply documented in Harvard Law Huge. Professor Jack Goldsmith's book, In Hoffa's Shadow. Absolutely. Bobby uh, uh, was, head of, was the head lawyer for the McClellan Rackets Committee. They had wiped out the, uh, Hoffa's predecessor, David Beck, out of the Teamsters Union in Seattle and therefore Hoffa took control and they thought they had created a monster. So Bobby Kennedy was after Jimmy Hoffa relentlessly. When he became Attorney General, he personally recruited and hired a staff of about a dozen or 15 special prosecutors whose only job was to get Jimmy Hoffa. 
was known within the Department of Justice as the Get Hoffa Squad. What I think happened, and Walter Sheridan ran it, he happened to be an FBI agent and not a lawyer, but he ran the Get Hoffa Squad for Bobby Kennedy. First thing Cox asked for when he accepts the position, get me Walter Sheridan's contact information. And I think he worked out with Sheridan that James Neal, who'd been a member of the Get Hoffa Squad, was the perfect guy to run the Watergate task force. Of the five task forces. Who were the, the other four? The Plumbers Task Force is first run by Phil Heyman, who's brought down from Harvard with uh, uh, Archibald Cox. And then he's replaced by a guy named William Merrill. Merrill is a principal uh, assistant U.S. attorney in Detroit, ran for office as a, uh, as a Democrat and lost. He was head of Robert Kennedy's uh, campaign for president, brief campaign for president in 1968. And he decides, he wrote a book, decides uh, uh, that this would be good for his career and he wants to help. So he flies from Detroit to Washington uh, uninvited and lobbies for a position on the, on the staff. Uh, and he gets it and he becomes ultimately head of the uh, plumbers task force. These are not unbiased, objective Number three task force. Uh, I can't tell you. The, oh, uh, uh, there's a guy named Charlie Ruff, R-U-F-F, who runs or assumes leadership of the campaign finance task force and ultimately becomes uh, Bill Clinton's uh, counsel. He, uh, he's the guy in the wheelchair that defends Clinton during the uh, Clinton impeachment. And the IT&T scandal. Uh, 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 but he, oh, he's, his name is Connolly. Uh, he's the son of a Republican um, congressman, uh, uh, and uh, he's touted highly because he's the only Republican they can find, uh, and uh, uh, he quits with his two top staff people when they declined to indict Richard Kleindienst for false testimony in the ITT scandal. And uh, I've finally, left you the dirty tricks. I don't know the name, but let's go back over what they were doing. Yeah. Uh, ITT was, uh, uh, the, the Republican convention was going to occur in San Diego. The uh, uh, Sheraton hotel chain had built the a huge hotel. The deal was they'd use that as the headquarters for the campaign in exchange for a two hundred <clears throat> $200,000 contribution, help them both. But ITT had an antitrust case pending at the same time, and the allegation was that's what the 200000 was for. Okay. Don't know anything else about it. Didn't involve the White House. Uh, dirty Tricks was Donald Segretti. We talked about Donald Segretti and the black advance. And, you know, that we talked about Dick Tuck on the Democratic side. Uh, Dick Tuck was famous for one of his dirty tricks. Nixon was doing a campaign whistle stop tour from the back of a train, pulling into these little towns, giving a speech, and then moving on. And Dick Tuck famously put on an engineer's cap, signaled to the engineer to pull the train out to the next stop, and Nixon's starting his speech, and the train is moving down. Yes, Black advance. Fun. Black advance. Black advance. Campaign finance had to do with the fact that uh, uh, Nixon's campaign in Maury Stans was so successful uh, uh, in, in raising money, and, and McGovern's was not. Uh, so they investigated the daylights out of that. What happened with the Stans investigation and the trial of Maurice Stans? Well, they, they, there was no trial. Uh, there were all kinds of allegations. Uh, it, it took a long time. Ultimately, uh, Maury agreed to, to plead to two 
minor technical violations that were, were really nothing. Uh, and then the task force says, oh, we've got to put you in jail for, you know, for these nothing things. He wrote a book called Terrors of Justice. Yes. And he outlines in the book all of the allegations, everything else. And there's a wonderful paragraph at the end when he says, you know, they said, they said there was foreign money. They said there was bribery. They said that we were selling ambassadorships. They said we were doing this. They said, and nothing came of it. And he's very famous for saying, where do I go to get my reputation back? He, then he, he came to the Nixon Foundation and successfully raised money for the room, the building in which we are. Wonderful That's what guy. he did. Wonderful man. Let's go to the other one, the Plumbers, plumbers Task Force. Plumbers Again, task force. did Dean spill the knowledge of the plumbers at that previously? Absolutely, yeah. But that had not previously come forward. Not been known. No, 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 not been known at all. Uh, uh, the, the whole worry was Hunt was going to spill it. So Dean, to try to protect himself, to get immunity for himself, he goes and spills it. Do you think if John Dean were to write another memoir, one that you consider Jeff Shepard to be true and transparent, one that would earn your seal of approval given your suspicions, and I don't want to slander Mr. Dean, but if he gave the full and unvarnished truth, do you think he'd have a bestseller on his hands? Perhaps, but John Dean doesn't know the truth. I think what happens with John, and this is speculation, John thinks about what he wishes he had done. He was in the center of this whole thing. And he, and he plots it out with, with some specificity and then somehow that becomes his reality. Now, he has written a book, he did Blind Ambition at the time, but he wrote a book in 2014 called The Nixon Defense, which is not The Nixon Defense. It's John Dean's attempt for the ages, knowing that these records are going to become public, oh. to try to defend himself. And he has two, there's, I, I did a review, and there's all these admissions against interest. I don't trust him, but if he says something adverse to his own interest. A good rule of evidence. A good rule of evidence. You'll pay attention to that. Two things. He devotes Appendix A to saying the 18-minute gap is historically insignificant. That if you look at Nixon's diaries, this is just three days after the break-in, look at Nixon's diaries, look at Haldeman's diaries, they didn't know anything. So yeah, there's a gap, but there was nothing there of any significance anyway. Do you know, but, pause for a moment, if John Dean would come and sit in this imaginary chair opposite you, mm -hmm. with me and another moderator that he referee. could name. You'd need a referee. But wouldn't it be interesting? Uh, John Dean has uh, threatened to leave uh, any time when I would appear. He, he, he says, well, uh, he was a young lawyer uh, on the staff. I, I, I didn't know him very well. And I understand he's written a book, and he thinks Ted Kennedy was responsible for Watergate. I haven't read the book, so I really can't discuss it. He moves on. So, but if he's listening, and pretty much it's a guarantee that if you write a book about someone, you'll sell one copy at least. Uh, and we're doing eight, perhaps nine hours on Watergate. My guess is that Mr. Dean will listen. And when he does, he understands he has an open invitation to come here and sit in that chair here, which does not yet exist with me and anyone else he wants to name to co-moderate, who is like me, a lawyer, and versed, and we will talk. But let's get back now right, to the dirty tricks. But now we want to finish one other item. Two significant disclosures in his 2014 yes. book. The 18-minute gap is historically insignificant, and then a footnote at pages 54 and 55 of his book, where he says, you know, it's the funniest thing, the smoking gun tape has been misunderstood for 40 years, and he goes through in detail, and he says, you know, uh, uh, if Nixon's lawyers had understood it, 
they took it out of context and they read what they thought they read, but in fact it was trying to protect the identities of these two political contrib contributors. And he ends by saying, if Nixon had known, he might have lived again to fight another day. This is an exact quote of the end of this long footnote. In short, the smoking gun was shooting blanks. Now, go back a little bit. The cover-up trial, we'll get to the cover-up trial. Bob Holloman's life and career are hanging by a thread. He knows John Dean told him to get the CIA to tell the FBI not to interview these two guys to protect their political identities. And all he wants is Dean to admit that. Holloman knows it's true. No. Dean says, well, no, that's really not what was going on. They were worried about Gordon Liddy. Sereka says in his book, imagine the most significant damning tape in evidence Bob Haldeman tries to dismiss as political decisions to protect somebody. Incredible. John, you know, if you're a witness, you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. John Dean says that in 2014, but in 1974, when Bob Haldeman's life is at risk, technically, his career, everything, John Dean doesn't tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It's really upsetting. So those are the, the two massive, I mean, he's, he's written the book where he tries to be, to be forthright, with, within reason. Lots of other shortcomings, lots of other parsing of words. Let's back go back to, to the, the task forces. The task forces. Okay, the plumbers the task dirty force. trick plumbers task force and the Watergate task force, they spawn separate investigations. Absolutely. In fact, those have a lot more ground to cover than the Watergate task force because that case has already been made. That's already, already been broken by the, by the career prosecutors. That's a mop-up. What they do in the plumbers task force, let's go back just for a second. Uh, uh, Ehrlichman approved a covert operation. Ehrlichman's entire defense is, I didn't approve a break-in. I approved a covert operation. Uh, they bring down this professor, uh, Phil Heyman, from, uh, from law school. And he argues the proposition that uh, there's no such right. There is no national defense exception to the Fourth Amendment's prohibition against improper search, unreasonable searches and seizures. And they first make that case with Bud Crowe, because remember, Bud has perjured himself under John Dean's instruction about the plumber's break-in. Does John Dean deny that? I don't know. Okay, so I, I just know. want to say, I, I don't want to be sued for slander. I just want to make, make uh, it Bud known. Krog, Bud Krogh testified to it uh, before the grand jury. Bud Krogh told me in person that I didn't misunderstand Bud Krogh. Okay. Uh, uh, so the case is turning on this national security exception. Bud presents it first, and he presents it in a case heard by Judge Gazelle, Judge Gerhard Gazelle, is the only other judge other than Judge Sirica who hears uh, Watergate cases, and he hears Bud Krogh's perjury charge first, and he rules against him. He says, no, there's no such, no such right. They bring Heyman down to argue. The, I mean, it's a, it's a technical argument. So when Merrill is running the plumber's task force, he says, you know, Ehrlichman's mounting the same defense. We want that judge. So he writes in his book, we went to Leon Jaworski and said, call up Sirica, 
and tell him that we want Gerhard Gazelle to preside over the plumber's case. Time out. You've just introduced another new name. And for the benefit of our audience, Leon Jaworski is the second special prosecutor who replaces Archibald Cox. We will come to that moment in a second. I just want the yes. audience to understand he's the new Cox who arrives after the so-called infamous Saturday Night Massacre. Yes, that's correct. Jaworski is the second special prosecutor leading or captured of a staff entirely hired by Archibald Cox and James Vorenberg and Philip Heyman. And does he replace anyone when he arrives? Oh, Lord, no. No, 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 no. Just one, let's make it. No, they're, they're back well now to the, yeah. they're doing the investigation. Nobody trusts Leon Jaworski. His staff doesn't trust him. The White House doesn't trust him. He's got a tiger by the tail. All right, we'll, so we'll, we'll, get, into we'll get into that. But this, the, the, these two they task bring in, This is, this is uh, the plumbers. So the, this is totally improper. This is, this is outrageous to have an ex parte conversation between Jaworski and Sereka to recommend Sereka appoint Gerhard Gazelle because he's already ruled the right way. If that had become known, that would have been tossed out. They bring Phil Heyman down to make this argument on behalf of the Plumbers Task Force. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, what is so strange is that Heyman had been in the Solicitor General's office under the Kennedy administration. If he had said at the time, you know there's no national security exception to the Fourth Amendment's prohibitions, they would, have, they would have told him to pound sand. They would never have accepted that argument, but as an outsider in this jury-rigged special prosecutor's office, he comes in, argues with the authority of the Department of Justice this position, which was an anathema to any government, all the way back to Franklin Roosevelt. But I, what I want to do is, task force. is to steer us back to the intersection of the Senate inquiry and the task force set up under Archibald Cox, which is the revelation by Alexander Butterfield that there is a taping yes. system. What does that set in motion, Jeff <laughs> Shepard, that ends up at the Supreme Court? How quickly does it end up there? And how does it intersect with the prosecutions? Uh, that disclosure, quote, changed everything because everybody immediately assumed the tapes would, would uh, uh, resolve all the ambiguities and we would know for sure about Nixon's involvement. <clears throat> and, and this is proof positive. All aspects switch, not of the other task forces, but of the Watergate task force and the special prosecution. Uh, uh, and, and it all turned on getting the tapes. Two more people, because I didn't name them, they weren't head of the task forces. Hank Ruth, Henry Ruth, was deputy to Cox and to Dworsky and became special prosecutor when they, after both of them resigned. And they hired another person from the uh, uh, Solicitor General's office, excuse me, a gentleman by the name of Philip Lacavara. And he's kind of counsel to the special prosecutor. He's staff, and he does the memos, or his staff does the memos on the technicalities of whether we're going to do this or whether we're going to do that. But once the taping system is revealed, and we described Nixon's dilemma, but in the end he does not destroy the tapes, the subpoena appears for the first nine from the special prosecutor, but it's a grand jury subpoena. We turn over seven because two don't exist. Then we should stop. In, in the 20 minutes left in this hour, we should introduce to the layman what the grand jury's role is so that someone who has never before encountered this would understand 
what the special prosecutor is doing with the grand jury. Surely. Uh, we go back to the original break-in, June 17, 1972. Yes, 1972. The, uh, the, the district had just impaneled a grand jury on June 5th. Didn't have much to do, but they impaneled. A grand jury is up to 24 good citizens and true. It meets to make decisions on whether people should be indicted. And in the grand scheme of things, it's indict or go home. And they take testimony in secret from whomever they choose, and that person, whether witness or potential target, goes into the grand jury room and there's a court reporter without benefit of counsel. Now, he can stop the proceedings and walk outside and consult with counsel, but he can't bring counsel into the room. He cannot bring witnesses of his own volition to, to uh, contradict accusations, and he can't cross-examine other witnesses. That's has, the famous saying, a prosecutor can get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. Yes, because it's totally under the control of the prosecutors. I've said in different contexts that if it weren't named in the Constitution, we would never allow it because it's an outrageous violation of due process. You have no rights. The original purpose, going back far enough, was the king couldn't come into your area and accuse you of crime unless they could convince a dozen or a dozen and a half of your neighbors that you had committed it. And that's changed, where now prosecutors use the grand jury as their principal investigatory device. The anvil is the grand jury, the hammer is the prosecutor, and in between are the suspected and the guilty, the innocent as well. You get a subpoena to go in front of the grand jury and little apples come out. I mean, I got to tell you, scariest thing, particularly in Watergate. You don't know what they're doing. You don't know the significance of what you did. You worked in the Nixon White House. People are falling, you know, like, like ten pins around you. You don't know what you know. And, and so you got you to gotta get a lawyer. You got no money. The lawyer says, well, what the hell did you do? You say, I don't know. So you tell the lawyer everything you did from the beginning of your joining the administration. You run up a huge legal bill. You go in, and, and they're playing gotcha. And you don't know if you're a target or not a target. I mean, they're, they're, this is a highly... Did you testify before the grand jury? No, I was not involved. And then I became a lawyer for our side. And I now, and that brings up, by the way, the president is not without representation through this period of time. We know the famous name, James St. Clair. We know the name Fred Buzzhart, who began as his real defense counsel to Watergate. John Dean. I know, but who succeeded Dean? Fred Buzzhart. When Al Haig came over as chief of staff, he brought with him within the week uh, uh, the general counsel of the Department of Defense, <clears throat> Fred Buzzhart. And who did Fred, when did James St. Clair get involved? Months later. As a personal lawyer? Never. There were no personal lawyers involved in Nixon's Watergate defense. Bazart was a classic Washington insider, uh, but not a public man. Uh, and we were searching for a trial lawyer. You know, in the English system, there's a solicitor who deals with clients and readies the case. There's a barrister who puts on the powdered wig and goes into court. We were looking for the barrister. We had the solicitor part. Uh, that's the part I worked on. Uh, and we kept bringing people in, 
interviewing them and they either turned it down or there wasn't a bond between them and Nixon. Uh, Nixon was a very difficult client. He felt he was uh, innocent, wrongly accused, and couldn't understand why this kept going. Uh, ultimately, we landed Jim St. Clair, and he's announced in December of 1973. Now, the uh, uh, Cox is fired in the Saturday Night Massacre. Now, wait, let's not get ahead of this. I want to make them dangle for that a little okay. bit. That's October. Uh, Jaworski comes in November, St. Clair comes in December, and it changes everything. Because but Buzzard is there when the subpoena arrives throughout. for the tape. Absolutely. And so you contest the right, the, the, by you I mean the president's legal team, contest the right of the special counsel to these tapes. Well, that's the first nine. Uh, that comes uh, uh, shortly after Butterfield in July of 73 says, oh, there's this tape system. Then much later, uh, 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 in probably April or May of 74, Jaworski on his own as the special prosecutor subpoenas 64 more tapes. Let's talk about the first nine. Did the president and his staff contest the legitimacy of the subpoena? Before Sirica, yes, lost. Before the D.C. Circuit. And the D.C. Circuit said, don't make us decide between the right of a criminal prosecutor and the president's executive privilege, work it out. So there was a pause, we tried to work it out. In the course of trying to work it out, Archibald Cox suggested a possible compromise that's called third party authentication. You don't want to turn over the tapes. We want what's on the tapes. Tell you what, you prepare a transcript, we will have uh, uh, the, the classic fair witness compare the transcripts to the tape and certify the transcripts are correct. You give us the, the uh, transcript, you don't turn over the tape. We both get what we need. We said, no, we don't want to do that. Go back to the court. We said, we won't tell you what we did, but we couldn't agree. The court rules against Nixon. We the then D.C. Circuit. D.C. Circuit. Panel of three. Three uh, uh, sitting in bunk. Oh, it does sit in bunk. Uh, well, uh, I believe. I'm not sure. Is there I, a dissent? No, they don't sit in bunk. It's panel of three. All right, thank you. Okay, uh, they sit in bunk later on. Panel of three. We then say, well, I tell you what. Let's go back to the third party authentication. And Haig is now there, and he's negotiating this. And he gets the impression from Elliot Richardson, who can play with words, that it was Cox's idea, if Cox doesn't go along with it, Elliot is prepared to dismiss Cox. And Haig says that to the president. That's undisputed. The difficulty is that's not Elliot Richardson's memory. And it's certainly not Cox's. <clears throat> Cox doesn't agree. Cox seems to agree with third-party authentication. We pick Senator John Stennis to be the fair witness. Who's, but he's hard of hearing and he's old. But he's the most respected guy in the entire Senate. But that's disputed now. Uh, could be. Yep. He's been shot by 22. He's, he's in ill health. He's, uh, he's not 
But to the old. young audience listening now and 50 years from now, he's an aging segregationist who can't hear. Why did you um, pick Stennis? Well, we thought he was the most respected senator, and Bizarre knew him. Uh, uh, uh -huh. And we, we cleared that with Baker and Irvin. Interesting. And they came over and were present when we announced the Stennis Compromise. And, and this is Friday morning, October 19th. John Dean has pled to a single felony. We realize he's going to get off with a, step on the, a slap on the wrist. We announce the Stennis Compromise, and Cox says, not so fast. And time out, I want people to understand that the context for these negotiations is the Yom Kippur War, which has broken out earlier and is proceeding yes. apace, and the existence of Israel is on the line. Hangs in the balance. Dr. Kissinger is on the phone all the time with Alexander Haig and the president, and they're talking to Golda Meir and Anwar Sadat. And it is a true moment in history when Nixon says, send everything that can fly, even as the negotiation over these transcripts goes forward. It's one of those situations where Nixon is really president, and he concludes the Department of Defense is not enthusiastic as he wants them to be, and he gives this order that whatever they've asked for double, and they're stripping armament out of Germany and other places to get it to Israel to save Israel. And, and, and Golda Meir says, that's what did it. You know, the USAID came in the nick of time, and we saved Israel. And, but, but this discussion of right the tapes in the middle, and Stennis uh, is right, right, in on, right in the middle of it. And Haig is talking to Richardson, and, and uh, 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 people are negotiating with Cox, but, but it's, it's always one-off. And then after the announcement, Cox seemed to agree. And then Cox talks to two people. Remember, this is his idea. Not Stennis, but it was his idea. He talks to his daughter, who's a law student in uh, Arizona, on the phone. And he talks to a reporter, New York Times reporter, a very influential New York Times reporter named Tony Lewis, Anthony Lewis. And the prosecutors wrote in their subsequent book that whenever they were having trouble convincing Jaworski to do something, they'd bring... Tony Lewis down because Tony was so influential. When they were having trouble this is, persuading Cox this is, this is, or, No, but this is, they wrote that in their book. Okay. But they had Tony Lewis talk to, to Cox, Cox about the compromise, and Cox says, I, I, I got no part of this. After so, he's talked to Lewis. Yeah. His daughter and to Lewis says, no, I got no part of this. And Haig, who's told Nixon Elliot's willing to fire Cox if he doesn't go along with it, calls Elliot, and Elliot, who someday wants to run for president, looks at the situation and says, you know, I'd be more highly thought of if I just got out of here. So he goes over and he says, I've decided to resign rather than fire Cox. And so the president accepts his resignation. Bill Ruckelshaus, who is deputy attorney general, nice guy, uh, is informed of this situation, and, and uh, Al Haig is alleged to have said, your commander-in-chief has given you an order, fire Cox, and Ruckel's house resigns or is fired, it's a little unclear, comes down to Bob Bork. Bob Bork is the solicitor general and the third person at the Department of Justice, and they've talked about it over there at DOJ, they don't like where this is going, and Bork says, well, I, I never thought we should have a special prosecutor in the first place. I'm against this whole separate investigation. Al, uh, 
I'll fire him and then I'll resign because I don't want to be the fall guy. But they say, you know, the statute doesn't specify who's in charge after the Solicitor General. So he gets convinced to stay. He fires Cox. He folds the special prosecutor's office back into the criminal division where he thinks it should have been in the first place. Is Henry Peterson <clears throat> still running the Absolutely, under, under the auspices of Henry Peterson, the career head who's served under 12 attorneys general, uh, who's straight as he can be. But Cox goes to the National Press Club the next day, talks about the rule of law. We're going into Columbus Day weekend. Everybody's gone. The news goes crazy. There's been a coup. The president has fired the special prosecutor. And what Al Haig says is there was a firestorm of protest. And they look at the aftermath. And on Tuesday morning, the, the day after Columbus Day, uh, the president's lawyer, uh, uh, he's a government lawyer uh, uh, that is representing the president, happens to be an outside consultant, uh, 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 James Allen Wright, right on federal courts. Very, very prestigious Texas, guy. University of Texas. Yeah, Bob University of Texas. Uh, uh, and says the president's going to turn over the tapes. Now, what happened is during this negotiation, they had passed the deadline for appeal of the D.C. Circuit to the Supreme Court. So they were out of options. And they, they said, we'll give you the tapes. When did the president make the speech with the binders? Uh, April 30th, 1974, much later. Much Those later. are the 64 tapes. Okay, so yeah. I just want to make sure. So we, he did not appeal to the public that he had offered the transcript at this point. This is all litigated in court. Out of the blue, in the middle of the Yom Kippur War, yep. Archibald Cox is fired. Uh, Elliot Richardson resigns. Uh, William Ruckelshaus resigns. Bork takes over. Becomes att acting attorney general. A firestorm erupts, and what happens? Uh, we agree that we'll turn over the tapes and we will start looking for another special prosecutor. We being? Uh, Charles Allen Wright uh, uh, and uh, probably Ron Ziegler in the press office. And did the president agree to that? He had to have agreed to it. I'm it was, curious. It was announced. I, I didn't chat with him about there it. There isn't a tape. Though. I don't know. I just don't know. But Al Haig is speaking for the president. Al Haig's job is to go recruit somebody that's willing to come into this mess uh, uh, I go over at the time, I'm the first White House official to call on Robert Bork, who's now acting Attorney General and not happy about it, and say, you know, we need legal representation at the White House. The President, we can't count on the Department of Justice. Uh, we need lawyers because we, we have to respond to all these demands. And he says, you can hardly come over here and expect that kind of cooperation after what you've done. But he did agree that we could post notices in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the district and in uh, Virginia and at the Department of Justice looking for volunteers to come help. And how many people then constitute the president? We're about to wrap up this segment with the new special counsel, Leon Jaworski, being appointed by Robert Bork, I believe. No, well, Al Haig negotiates it but uh, Robert and Bork, gives guarantees. According uh, to the uh, guidelines previously established yeah. with the old staff. Uh, uh, Jaworski shows up about November 5th. Uh, we land St. Clair in December. Uh, we, we, we're recruiting the staff for Jim St. Clair, and we get about a dozen lawyers. And at that point, we wrap up part seven and part eight. 
is the clash of the legal teams. Yes. That leads to the revelation of the tapes, which we've talked about, and ultimately to the president's resignation. But if you want to hear that part, you'll have to listen to Known Unknowns, part Watergate, part eight. Sounds good.